Well, uh, it's going to be a very productive early afternoon hearing Dr. Patel teach us about viral infections in the ICU, followed by a U.S. win over Germany, which we can, can stick around and visualize. All right, so uh, I'll make this brief. Uh, Dr. Patel is the uh, director for the MICU-ID service here in the at Maryland, and um, appreciate him for being here. Thank you, sir. So, um, you know, Mike asked me to do a couple. He actually asked me to do one lecture, fungal infections and viral infections in the ICU, which that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because I spent an hour just talking about fungal infections. My plan today was to cover several viral infections, but we're not going to get to nearly enough material to, to do anything significant. What I'm going to do is go over some typical viral infections that we encounter in the ICU so you recognize that these are possible pathogens, but we're not going to have enough time to go into the specifics of each one um, other than a little bit in the herpes viruses. So I think you know maybe Mike and I can talk about in the future doing something a little more substantial talking about just like pneumonias or something like that. So this this was the, the note that I was going to give to Mike to say that I couldn't do today's lecture. Um, four years ago, I was actually in South Africa, and I got to see about nine of the matches, including the first two U.S. matches. So this is killing me right now. But um, <clears throat> we're going to identify key risk factors. Oh, this is the wrong slide. Sorry. I didn't take that out. So viral infections in the ICU, herpes viruses, respiratory viruses. I wanted to do encephalitis as well, but we just aren't going to have enough time to go through that. So we're going to start with the herpes viruses. And um, I, hopefully everybody remembers back from medical school, herpes viruses are not just herpes simplex viruses, but the whole family of herpes viruses, HHV1 through 8. HSV1 and 2, that's um, HHV1 and 2 as well. That's human herpes viruses 1 and 2. They're herpes viridae family. They're large DNA-containing envelope viruses. I'm not going to go into it um, too much, but in general, as you all know, HSV1 causes um, oral labial lesions, and HSV2 causes genital lesions in most people. But um, obviously, because of oral sex, you can have HSV1 causing genital lesions and vice versa. In general, this is not a very significant disease, but you know the, um, the situations where it is, which we're going to go into is encephalitis and pneumonitis. These are more um, common and severe in immunocompromised patients. Most people are HSV1 infected, so about 90% plus of us will have antibodies by the age 50. Um, there's an inverse relationship with socioeconomic status. If you look at um, poor neighborhoods, if you look at countries that are less developed, everybody is infected at an early age. has to do with hygiene, close quarters, crowding, all of those things. HSV2 is related to number of partners, age of sexual debut. Um, prevalence is greater in women than men. Um, uh, Mike, I didn't give Mike a chance to mention this, but um, some of you may know that I do a lot of work in... Um, the developing world. I've worked in Zambia and um, Haiti and amongst other places. And when you look at prevalence in those countries for HSV2, you can see it's higher than what we see in the United States. And these are old numbers. And the fact of the matter is we don't have good data saying what HSV2 prevalence is here in the United States now, but it's estimated somewhere between 33% to 50%. So that's genital herpes, not HSV1. Much higher in men who have sex with men. This leads to increased HIV as well. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this again, but you know this is, well, this was to gross you out and wake you up. Um, genital infections, obviously what, what we see most commonly, clearly not an issue as much in the intensive care unit. But I just want you to know that the primary infection of herpes viruses is much like influenza or much like any other um, viral syndrome. It's headache, it's fever, it's myalgias. Um, you're not going to see the lesions necessarily, okay? So when somebody has sex with somebody who's got herpes um, lesions, genital lesions, that doesn't mean they're going to get genital lesions the next day. What that means is over the next few days they're going to get a viral syndrome, okay? And that becomes important um, in a second. But those are typical herpes, skin lesions, uh, genital lesions. This you may see. In fact, this patient, um, uh, this is one that um, uh, I got off the Internet but I saw a patient just like this in the MICU a couple years ago. It was a cancer center patient, bone marrow transplant. They look like burn victims, okay? So they get the bone marrow transplant. They're severely immunosuppressed. 
HSV1 or HSV2 goes out of control, and you see these lesions like this. So when you see something like this, think about herpes um, because it's very treatable, all right? And they're going to they're gonna have um, uh, insensible losses and things like that, just like you would see with a burn patient. So that's something you want to think about. Aseptic meningitis with herpes, HSV. So this occurs with primary genital herpes, mostly HSV2. So you have a partner who's got um, herpes lesions on their genitals, you have sex with them, and a week later or whatever, you have your viral syndrome. Up to 20% of those people, 36% of women, 11% of men, but 20% of overall will develop a meningitis, okay? So now, we don't necessarily see those people because it's self-limited, it's not very significant, they don't go to their doctors, but you might see this. And again, you'll see this maybe in the medical ICU, somebody gets admitted for a meningitis, and what they have is herpes meningitis from primary herpes infection, not herpes encephalitis, okay? Again, usually self-limited, goes away, um, doesn't cause too much um, um, disease. You have an entity called recurrent or Molaritz meningitis. This is recurrent HSV2 meningitis that occurs beyond that primary infection, and it recurs just like you would have recurrent lesions um, on the genitals or on the, on the lips. So um, self-limited episodes of fever, meninges, meningismus, headache. Uh, some people say give these folks acyclovir. There's not a whole lot of data to say it does much good. It's a very rare entity, but you will see aseptic meningitis due to herpes. Um, this is HSV2. No. So um, HSV encephalitis is the one that everybody's afraid of, right, John? You In the ER, everybody gets acyclovir for this reason. Um, it's a rare entity, about 1 in 250,000 per year in the United States. I do remember that um, Rob Rogers gave um, a, a CPC when I was a resident here. Um, for those of you who know Rob Rogers, he went through this whole case. He was a patient with herpes encephalitis, and it was completely mismanaged. And at the end, he tells you that it was his mother um, who had had herpes encephalitis. It was pretty severe. I don't know what the end of the sequelae was, but she was in a nursing home for a while and all of that. So this is a devastating illness, 70% um, mortality without treatment. It's got a bimodal distribution, um, younger people, older people. And in immunocompetent people, this is almost always going to be HSV-1. So this is somebody who has a history, which is 90% of us, right? 90% of us have HSV-1. So if we have um, something that depresses our immune system, such as old age, um, but say you put somebody on rituximab for something or they got chemotherapy, that's going to increase their risk for having nasal labial reactivation that occurs in uh, the meninges. Uh, and then they can lead to encephalitis. So these people get HSV encephalitis. Um, you can see it in HSV too, but it's more likely if it's primary infection. So how does that present? It's got headache, fever, nuchal rigidity, some of the things that you see with meningitis. But you're going to see um, you're going to see aphasia sometimes because it affects the temporal lobe, and that's actually the classic finding for this. Is if you MRI these patients, they're going to have this necrotizing process in the temporal lobe. And sort of the clinical pearl for this is when you do your LP, you're going to see reds. You're going to see RBCs on your LP. Not a whole lot of whites. Not consistent with the bleed. When you have bacterial meningitis, you don't really get reds. You get a lot of whites, but you don't get very many reds. You're going to see reds here along with whites, and you're going to see an elevated protein in about 80% of these cases. So this is the one that everybody's always afraid of. This is the reason why everybody gets put on um, IV acyclovir. The board question for this is, you know, a 55-year-old gentleman who was in previously good health and now developed fever, confusion. His wife notices that he comes down for breakfast and pours orange juice on his cereal instead of milk, and then he deteriorates very quickly over the next two hours. Okay? So that's, that's HSV encephalitis. HSV pneumonitis. I, you know, we could spend an hour or two I don't want to, but some people would like to spend an hour or two just on this. Good question. Yeah, I didn't want to get into it too much. HSV PCR is actually very, very um, sensitive, but if you suspect HSV encephalitis uh, clinically, the clinical picture fits. Even if your PCR is negative, you should treat them. Okay, and that's 14 days of IV acyclovir. And with IVA cyclovir, the biggest risk factor, the biggest toxicity is nephrotoxicity because you get crystallization in the 
um, in the tubules. So you got to be careful. You got to make sure that you hydrate them uh, very well. Um, so HSV pneumonitis is extremely uncommon. If you look in the medical literature, it's not there very often. Um, I, I don't get to work in the other ICUs, but in the MICU, I'm always telling the critical care fellows that come through there, don't send everything on every patient because you can. Because a lot of people are going to shed HSV and their, their bronchial secretions. So if you don't think it's HSV pneumonitis, don't send it. Because if it comes back positive, you're going to want to treat it. And I'm going to say, don't treat it. And then we get into this whole thing. So if they're immunocompromised and they, you know, when I say immunocompromised, really you're talking about stem cell transplant patients for the most part. You're talking about um, maybe lung transplant, um, heart transplant. Those are the patients where I would think about HSV pneumonitis. But even there, it's a very, very uncommon um, entity. The problem with these diagnoses is the way to, to definitively say that they have HSV pneumonitis is to do a biopsy. And we're not going to do biopsy, right? You're not going to do a biopsy on, uh, on these patients. They're very ill. So we, we see the HSV PCR. We think it fits the picture. And then we treat them. But you're going to end up treating a lot of people that don't need to be treated if you just go by the PCR. Um, so it's not actually recommended to do this routinely. Um, the presentation is pneumonia, diffuse infiltrates. Uh, and then um, uh, alveolar hemorrhage. That's the thing that sort of um, clinches it. But there's a lot of things that give you DAH, so it's kind of hard to um, hang your hat on that. And you might have this necrotizing lung parenchyma that you would see with any sort of herpes um, infections. Any questions on herpes viruses? Uh, there's, I mean, I have like, uh, you know, 80 slides on herpes viruses, and I had to pare it down just to this. So please ask if you have any questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's questions of you know you get herpes stomatitis. You can get um, which is actually how it presents in in kids. One of the ways it presents in kids is herpes stomatitis. So there is air. You, you can have airway involvement, but it's just um, you're going to have shedding from herpes in in secretions, whether it's genital secretions or in um, bronchialveolar fluid. Yeah. Okay, the next virus I'm going to talk about is um, Epstein-Barr virus. I'm not going to spend as much time on it because it's not as big of an entity in the ICU, but you, you will see it. It's ubiquitous. It's worldwide. Most infections are uh, largely subclinical. The, the classic infection that you know about is infectious mononucleosis. Um, 90 to 95% of us have antibodies to it worldwide. Seroconversion occurs very early, 50% by age 5 in the United States, especially if they go to daycare and things like that. Earlier in developing world countries, it's the same thing for all herpes viruses. Um, the the uh, socioeconomic status dictates how early you get infected. And when, I'm in, when I was in Zambia, I never saw infectious mononucleosis. I've never seen a case of infectious mononucleosis in Haiti because everybody gets infected at such a young age that they don't have the immune response that causes the syndrome known as infectious mononucleosis. So it's really a disease of, of the developed world. Um, so clinically evident infection, more likely in the second decade of life. We're going to get to that in a second. When you look at infectious mononucleosis, um, the hallmark symptoms are um, sore throat, um, malaise, headache. You can see the numbers there. And then on the other side, when you look at signs, lymphadenopathy is a big one, pharyngitis, fever, splenomegaly in about half the patients. So again, the important thing here is, and, and you're going to see exudate in about a third of the patients when it's EBV, infectious mononucleosis. The important thing here, though, is that this is the immune response to the virus. That's what drives the disease. It's not the virus itself. Okay, so that's why you don't see a significant disease in young children, um, but when you get into adulthood, it becomes very significant. That's why adolescents are the ones that always get sick, because if they haven't been infected in childhood, they start getting infected by others in their adolescence because they start, you know, exploring. Okay, so they they get secretions from other people, and that's why um, adolescents tend to be the group that gets uh, uh, they get infectious mononucleosis. So other complications, and this, again, I've seen people in the ICU that were admitted for infectious mono, um, so because it can be pretty severe, and if you don't know why they're, 
looking so sick, you may think that they're septic or something else. And so we do see this in the ICU. But these are the things that would really get somebody in an ICU, into an ICU. And that's the hemolytic anemia that you can get due to cold agglutinins, um, which occurs actually a few weeks after they uh, initially get infected. Thrombocytopenia, um, you can have very severe thrombocytopenia. Unfortun uh, fortunately, it doesn't happen too much. And then splenic rupture. So this is the reason why um, kids who, are, uh, who have infectious mononucleosis are told not to have, uh, not to play contact sports, not to play football or whatever uh, for a few months because their spleens will be big and they're more likely to rupture. Other complications include encephalitis, myelitis, Guillain-Barre. Um, there's uh, an eye disease called PORN, progressive outer retinal necrosis. Don't Google PORN because it's like something else that comes up. Um, even if you, and I Googled PORN and EBV, it's still not what you're looking for. Um, so, but you will, you can see, and that's, that's a very serious disease because people lose their eyesight. So that's something that you want to call an ophthalmologist very quickly. Um, they may have to do intraocular antivirals, although it, it's not going to work. And, and the reason for this is Epstein-Barr virus, the infections that you see are due to latent disease, latent virus, not lytic virus. And the, and, um, the acyclovir works on lytic virus. So that's why it doesn't work. The only, only EBV disease where acyclovir might help is oral hairy leukoplakia, which is really a cosmetic disease. It doesn't really do anything. Um, you, can have, uh, you can have hepatitis. You can have uh, microscopic hematuria. You can have occasional rhabdomyolysis, which can lead to kidney disease. Uh, but death is very uncommon with this, as opposed to HSV encephalitis, where mortality is, is quite significant. So CMV. Um, this is the largest virus to infect humans. It's latent. You can find CMV particles in uh, a multitude of, of white blood cells, endothelial cells, um, and, you know, multiple places. This is where this hides out, right? HSV hides out in the neural ganglia. This, this hides out in a bunch of other places. So if you look at, uh, can you see that all right? Um, this is the CMV prevalence in the United States. You can see that, um, in general, uh, women are more likely to be infected than men. And again, it's related to socioeconomic status. You can see this is Mexican-Americans. This is um, non-Hispanic black females with the highest um, uh, prevalence. And then it's much lower for non-Hispanic white females and even lower for non-Hispanic uh, white males. Again, most of us are going to get infected with CMV. Problem is we don't know who is infected. Okay, So it becomes a real issue when, uh, when women are pregnant, and especially if they're you know, taking care of uh, if they're, especially if they have kids in daycare. I, I've had multiple colleagues say, I'm pregnant, and I'm, I, there's a patient who's got CMV whatever in bed nine. Um, can I go in the room? Yeah, you can go in the room as long as you're not like swapping secretions with the patient, which you probably shouldn't be doing as a healthcare provider, because that's how you actually get CMV. So who gives you CMV? Your child, your, chi your other child, the one that goes to daycare and does swap spit with the little boy in the next classroom, right? They stick their fingers in their mouth. And that's actually when women get infected, when they're pregnant, is they get infected because if, if their partner has it, they're probably already infected, right? Because they've already had sexual relations and things like that. But if they're not infected um, and their partner's not infected, they're probably going to get it from their kid who went to daycare, okay? And you can't really prevent that. So... Initial infection with CMV is a mononucleosis picture. The symptoms are malaise, fever, sweats, elevated LFTs. The things that are highlighted, um, those are the major things, and, and they also sort of set it apart from EBV. You're not going to see the exudate um, on, on the, on the um, oral exam like you would see with, um, with EBV. Okay, so that's one of the things that clues you in. And the elevated LFTs, you're much more likely to see a hepatitis with CMV mononucleosis than you are with EBV mononucleosis. For EBV, you can do a monospot test, which is heterophile antibodies. Basically, somebody a long time ago found out that if you have EBV infectious mononucleosis, you make all these crazy antibodies that don't really do anything. Well, some of them react with horse blood. Okay, that's a heterophile antibody, and that's how you diagnose infectious mononucleosis. That won't work for CMV. Okay, so that'll be monospot negative. So that's CMV. Um, 
Now, there's CMV HIV-associated disease. When I first started here, as a, when Mike and I were both interns, um, which is now, what, Mike, 11 years ago, something like that, we saw a ton of CMV retinitis, right? You remember, like, we would be on MedID, and we see CMV retinitis all the time. We don't see as much of it now because people are getting started on therapy earlier. But this was the most common serious op, uh, ocular complication of AIDS. If you went up to 11 East, there was always somebody up there with CMV retinitis, um, and it led to significant morbidity. And if you had CMV retinitis, you died. Not from CMV retinitis, but because CMV retinitis was marker of how poor you were doing in terms of your immune system. So it was only a matter of time before you died of cryptomeningitis or PCP or something else. Um, and the treatment, you know, is oral valgate. I'm not going to go into this because it's not an ICU issue, but CMV encephalitis is something you guys will see. Um, acute onset, fever, lethargy, delirium, delirium confusion, um, like every other patient in the ICU. Um, focal neurological uh, abnormalities, you might see them. But the big thing that give this, gives this away um, is you, you want to get the CSF, and if you do a, a CMV-PCR, that kind of clinches it for you. But it's a periventricular, white, uh, periventricular enhancement that you see here that's sort of classic for CMV um, encephalitis. This is actually a patient who had AIDS, so this big goomba here is, uh, is actually toxo. It's a calcified lesion from toxoplasmosis. But uh, CMV encephalitis, you know, it's not something we see too often. Really, uh, we don't even really see it in transplant patients. It was really a disease of AIDS patients. Again, CMV polyradiculopathy, I've seen a couple of cases of this. End stage AIDS, you get loss of um, deep tendon reflexes, incontinence, low back pain. Uh, the CSF, again, will show you some pleocytosis and uh, high protein. This CMB, um, this GI disease. This, this you will see because these patients can get very sick, end up in the ICU because of um, hypovolemia, shock, uh, hemorrhaging. Uh, it, it was primarily described in AIDS patients, but we do see this in transplant patients now. Uh, you can get CMB esophagitis, which usually causes more odynophagia than dysphagia. CMB colitis is, is the one with the fever, the diarrhea. You get these serpiginous ulcers that you see in that picture with erosions. And the way you diagnose this is you get a biopsy and you see the inclusion bodies that tell you this is CMV. Um, and gancyclovir might be effective. Really, it's more about getting the immune system back to where it needs to be. And are there people in here that work with a transplant? Uh, I guess if you're in the SICU, right, or the MICU. So, you know, there's been a, a, a great new drug, not new drug that's been used recently quite a bit, Campath. Right, so CAMPATH, just to give you an idea what CAMPATH does, CAMPATH basically makes people AIDS patients. Okay? So it, it destroys your immune system for a good year. So all the patients that get CAMPATH for induction are going to be at risk for all these diseases. All right, just keep that in mind when you see them. CMV pneumonitis. All right, this is, this is sort of a little bit controversial. I guess people always kind of um, argue back and forth about this. Generally, an uncommon cause of pneumonitis you can see it in, if you look in the literature, it's going to be primarily in lung transplants, heart transplants, and hematopoietic um, stem cell transplant patients. Those are the people that get CMV pneumonitis. Now, other people can get it, but it's, it's pretty uncommon. The way you diagnose it, again, is by biopsy, and you see that uh, um, the inclusion body with that uh, large nucleated cell. So that makes it difficult because we're not usually doing that. And, and uh, John just brought somebody. In, in the MICU yesterday, and he sent off a bunch of crap that I didn't understand why he was sending it. And one of the things he sent off was a CMV PCR. Actually, you sent a, you know you sent off CMV serology on that Bronx? I don't know what that was doing. But he sent off a CMV PCR. I know, I got to pick on him. You know, he won the Teacher of the Year Award yesterday. Did you know that? Yeah, he's the fellow Teacher of the Year for Pulmonary Critical Care. You're turning red. Um, so what happens? CMV reactivates. Okay, CMV sheds everywhere. You'll, in fact, in children, in neonates, the way you diagnose CMV neonatal infection is you look in their urine. Okay, you put a urine bag on them, and then you send it for CMV PCR, and if they have it, they're infected. Okay, so CMV comes out in all kinds of fluid. So what we see in, in critically ill patients, and this study was uh, in uh, critical care in 20, uh, 2011, they looked at patients who had CMV and they say CMV active infection. And I kind of, I, 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 I use that term loosely. In fact, I wouldn't use that term at all. What they saw was CMV positive PCR. That doesn't mean they have an infection, okay? So there's two different things. You will all shed CMV in your secretions if you're sick, but that doesn't mean you have CMV pneumonitis. 
we're all chronically infected with CMV. So what happens? There's a lot of shedding. Does that equal CMV pneumonitis? Not necessarily. But what we do know is when you look at these patients that have CMV in their um, bronchial secretions, that their mortality is high, uh, their morbidity is higher. This study did not show mortality, but there are other studies that show mortality is higher. So, you know, most of us kind of think of this as a marker of severity of illness. You know, you got your patchy scores and all that other stuff. Well, if you've got CMV, that tells you that you're sick, okay? I mean, that's the ID doc. We don't understand Apache scores, all right? So that might be what we're really looking at. Now, a lot of people argue, um, you know, do we need to treat these people? There's very little evidence out there. There's actually very little um, research done in this, in this area. And so it comes up frequently. We sent the bronch. It's got CMV. I think we ought to treat them for CMV pneumonitis. Well, how about the fact that they have a large lobar pneumonia and they have gram-positive coxine pairs growing? Okay? I think we ought to treat that because it's actually strep pneumo, and the CMV is just kind of there. And we do have some evidence from um, the HIV literature where a lot of patients with PCP will shed CMV in large quantities. If you treat their PCP, they get better. Okay? Just treat their PCP, they improve, even if you don't treat their CMV. In fact, we never treat the CMV. So CMV pneumonitis is a real thing, but who do you, who do you look at? Who, who gets it? It's going to be this patient, as I said, the lungs, lung transplants, the stem cell transplants, the heart transplants. And they, you want to make sure that they fit the picture of CMV pneumonitis. Okay? Because otherwise, you're going to give a lot of people gancyclovir that don't need it, and gancyclovir has a lot of toxicity. Um, so in transplant patients, uh, immunosuppressants can directly reactivate CMV. Uh, not on the immune system, but actually the virus itself, depending on what immunosuppressants you're using. And um, most infections that occur in transplant patients are reactivation disease. It's not that they were now newly infected with CMV. It's actually they were already CMV positive. They got immunosuppressants, and now their CMV has flared back up. And in the transplant literature, it's very clear that you need to make sure that CMV viremia is suppressed. Because if you don't, then they're more likely to reject the organ. They're more likely to get sick. And there's two schools of thoughts of how to do it. Some people just give everybody um, prophylaxis. And these guidelines vary depending on the type of transplant. So you can just give everybody oral gancyclovir for, for um, prophylaxis so they don't develop um, disease. Or the other group does this like watchful waiting sort of watch, you know, I don't know what the term is now. But they basically check their PCRs on a weekly or biweekly basis. So the minute they see the, the CMV PCR go up, they treat them. They give them um, uh, oral gancyclovir, uh, valgancyclovir. And otherwise, they just let them be. Either, either approach can be used. There's not any evidence that one approach is better than the other, although people keep trying to look at that. So stem cell transplant and CMV, this is the most common life-threatening complication, usually at 120 days after transplantation. Um, this keeps moving out because people get put on prophylaxis. So during that prophylaxis stage, they're not going to have reactivation. So it's whenever you stop prophylaxis. So it might be 120 days in this patient. It might be three months, four months, five months in the next patient. So um, it just depends on when you stop the prophylaxis. Mortality is as high as 84%. Most treatments are ineffective. Um, and you're going to see a high rate of shedding in the ICU patient. Again, if I see a transplant patient that has CMV in their, in their bronch, I'm probably going to treat it. But if it's a 26-year-old healthy person that has pneumonia and we're not sure why, I'm probably not going to treat the CMV that comes out of their bronch because it's, it's not that. It's going to be something else. Now, there are case reports of HSV pneumonitis and CMV pneumonitis in immunocompetent people. Um, but they really went through all the things that you need to do to make a, uh, an appropriate diagnosis in those patients. Liver transplant, uh, the most common complication with CMV is hepatitis, um, and it's most common after you have a positive CMV-positive donor and, and a negative recipient, and it's the leading cause of mortality in the first 14 weeks. Again, this is changing because these people get prophylaxis. So you can't use acyclovir um, because there's a viral thymidine kinase. The virus has a thymidine kinase that actually activates, um, HSV has the viral thymidine kinase, that actually activates acyclovir to its active form. Okay, that's why it works. So it's great. It's, it's actually brilliant um, in terms of whoever came up with this because it only works in cells that are infected. If you have a cell that's infected with, with herpes virus, it's got a, um, the thymidine kinase in there, and, it, and it'll um, activate the drug. 
Gancyclovir doesn't do, uh, 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 CMB doesn't have that thymidine kinase. So it's not going to work. So you got to use Gancyclovir or Valcite, uh, or you can use Foscarnid and Cydofovir, which are, which are really toxic drugs. Other herpes viruses. Um, VZV uh, can give you encephalitis. It can give you zoster. Um, it can also give you uh, pneumonia, which was the common uh, cause, uh, not common. It was the reason we give kids um, uh, chickenpox vaccine, because chick, uh, uh, VZV pneumonitis was was the thing that would actually kill kids. It wasn't very common, but it's preventable, so we don't we don't we now give vaccines for it. Um, and you actually can get porn with VZV as well. HHV8 uh, is associated with a couple of malignancies, a few malignancies: Kaposi's sarcoma, primary fusion lymphoma, multicentric Castleman's disease. All of these patients will end up in an ICU, but probably not a whole lot you can do from an intensive care standpoint to deal with it. Any, any more herpes virus questions? Does anybody have a score? Thank you. Um, so respiratory viruses. This is a great picture, right? This is what happens when people sneeze. Isn't that disgusting? So we're going to start with influenza. Lou's not here, right? He's the influenza expert. Um, so, you know, I, I put this slide up because um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Up in the top right, what do you see? You see chickens and pigs, okay? Why does influenza kill people? The thing is, influenza has um, both antigenic shift and drift, okay? Drift occurs daily, uh, yearly, right? You have a little bit of change in, in the antigens that that are present, and so that's why you got to get a new vaccine every year. But when you get a big shift, then people die because now they're seeing influenza that's so different from any influenza they've seen in their life. That's what happened in 1918, the Spanish flu. Spanish flu killed more people uh, than, than, um, than the people who died in World War I. Okay? So it's pretty significant. Um, and the reason this happens is because you have this mixing vessel, which is, which is thought to be the pig. So you have avian influenza, you have human influenza, and they can both infect the pig, and then you can have reassortment in the pig. Okay? So now that you've, now you've got a new virus, it's got completely different antigens than most of us have seen before, that comes back out, and that's what now infects humans and kills them. Right? So that's why there's all this, this fear about avian flu, swine flu. It's not that these are fully swine influenza. They have both human antigens and swine flu antigens and avian flu antigens. And why do they always talk about the, the Far East? Because you'll often see people living in rural communities where they have chickens and pigs that are um, you know, right there with them and, and not very sanitary conditions. Okay. So for most people, you know, I, and what frustrates me is that most people think that that little, those sniffles that they got, you know, like I had a cold, the flu, that wasn't the flu, right? Anybody, has anybody had the flu? Pretty miserable, right? right? I, when, I'm, when I'm in Zambia and I'm trying to explain flu to people, because everybody thinks that every cold that they have is a flu in Zambia, and I tell them, if you've had malaria, then you know what flu is, Okay. I don't know if it's a completely accurate, but it, it, I think it is actually because you get the myalgias, you get high fevers, you get the malaise. The sniffles are not the flu, right? So this is a, it's a very significant febrile illness. You have outbreaks of varying severity every winter. Um, attack rates can be as high as 10 to 40% over a six-week period when you have epidemics. As I said, the pandemic from the Spanish flu in 1918 was millions of deaths worldwide. They ran out of coffins in New York City when they had the Spanish flu. So this is a really kind of cool graph that shows you where flu occurs when. Uh, when where flu, yeah, where flu occurs when. So if you look at the United States, the highest number of flu cases occur from January to March and then from October to December. So that's our fall and winter, okay? When you look at Argentina, which is, got, uh, which is on the other side of the world, um, the southern hemisphere, their highest incidence of flu occur from April to September, which is their winter. But if you look at places like Colombia, which are tropical environments, you have sort of a steady uh, uh, prevalence of flu all year round. Okay, so you got to remember this because a lot of people now people travel all the time. They're traveling by plane, and so just because they're not 
uh, just because it's July doesn't mean they can't have flu, right? Because if they just flew from Argentina, it's very likely that they could have flu. Or if they came from a place that's in a, in a subtropical, tropical environment, they could have flu all year round. So this is straight from the um, MMWR recommendations. Persons at risk for complications due to influenza. So the really young, the really old, um, uh, adults who have chronic pulmonary disease like asthma, and you can see all the other things, immunosuppression, women who are pregnant, which is a big one. And, and I've, the worst flu cases I've seen, I think, over the last couple of years um, have been uh, women that were pregnant. And I remember one I remember very clearly, it was a lady who ended up getting ECMO. Do you remember her? And they delivered the baby. She, had, she went on ECMO. She actually survived. She made it out of the hospital. Um, I saw, I remember another guy who was about 32 years old, and um, he and his wife, he was a paramedic, and his wife was a nurse, and neither one of them got the flu vaccine because they were cleansing their bodies, cleansing, for they were, gonna, they were trying to get pregnant. She was, she was trying to get pregnant. I guess he wasn't. Um, and so they were cleansing by not getting their vaccines. And do you, know, you remember this guy? He ended up in the, in the MICU for three weeks because he got influenza, and then he got staph pneumonia on top of it. And by the time he was done, like his left lung looked like Swiss cheese. You don't, you don't grow back a lung, you know? <laughs> like that's, that's pretty significant disease. And he's 32 years old, you know? And it's, it's preventable. So, you know, most everybody should get the flu vaccine now. So uncomplicated flu, you can get the, the, pre, uh, the, the, the classic syndrome of fevers, chills, rigors, myalgia, malaise, anorexia. Um, sometimes kids will complain of calf pain, um, not very clear, probably like a myositis type picture. But what gets scary is when you get the complications, which is primary pneumonia. Now, primary pneumonia is very uncommon, but it can be pretty significant, progress to ARDS with high mortality. And that's probably what you're seeing a lot of the times in the ICUs when you have somebody with influenza. But the other thing, and it's the, this is the patient I just described to you, is the secondary bacterial pneumonia. So when you have this disrupted uh, uh, immune system because of the influenza virus, you can get um, uh, pneumococcus, staphylococcus, and um, uh, haemophilus infections. And, and if you see staph aureus, if you see influenza, you've got to be on the lookout for staph pneumonia, okay? Um, because a lot of these um, influenza patients will end up getting staph pneumonia, especially if they get hospitalized for their influenza. So 10% of patients in epidemics will have pulmonary complications. And what I find very striking here is when you're over the age of 70, 73% of those people will have pulmonary complications. That's pretty significant. You know, I mean, you look at what it is for, for those between the age of 5 and 50, it's about 4 to 5, 4 to 10%. And then all of a sudden, if you're over the age of 70, you're, you're going to have pulmonary complications. So those are the people that get sick. Those are the people that die. So nursing homes, you know, they have to make sure that they give um, vaccinations. You can have non-pulmonary complications. Myositis, um, which is probably the most common. You can get Guillain-Barre. Ray syndrome, which is seen in children. I don't think any of you guys are pediatric, so it's really not so much that I need to go through, um, except for you, but you know what it is, right? Okay. And uh, this past winter, actually, I saw some very um, weird uh, presentations of influenza. Um, we had a patient that had hives, and we couldn't figure out what it was. And you go back in the literature, it's actually very well described that hives are seen in patients with influenza during certain parts of their, their course. Um, we had another guy who had a, a meningitis, okay? Uh, he had a meningitis-like um, syndrome, and, and that, again, is very well described in the flu literature. So flu can do a lot of things. Any questions on influenza? Yeah. See, I was going really fast. Yeah, no, I mean, if, if you, you definitely want to treat these folks. The amantadines are, don't work. I mean, that's gone. They don't, I don't even know if they make them anymore because they, they just stopped working. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you, you definitely need to treat these patients. Um, even if it doesn't, it, it, at minimum, it probably attenuates the course of the disease. But you've got to start early. So if the patient's already been sick for five days, it's not going to do anything. And that's the thing we always try to tell people. You know, if they've already been sick for five days before they get to the uh, hospital, giving them treatment's not going to do a whole lot. Now, if they end up in the ICU, they all end up getting treated anyway. 
but it probably isn't going to do much in that situation. Um, I know that uh, transplant surgery recently, because they saw a case report, I hope they're not any transplants. I don't care, actually, if they're in here. Um, they like to go, they like to practice case report medicine. So there's a case report of using IVIG uh, in influenza patients. Everybody wants to use IVIG for everything, right? I mean, you get a cold. Hey, yeah, IVIG, that'll fix it. It's not, it's not expensive. It doesn't have anaphylaxis or anything with it. Anyway, so, uh, you know, influenza is a very serious disease. I think, you know, the important thing is everybody has to take it seriously and think about it. Think about it all the way through. Okay, start in September, go all the way through, think about it through April, and then think about it in people who've traveled because that's the one you don't want to miss is influenza. Adenovirus, um, this is a common cause of URIs, usually does not cause disease in immunocompetent people, but it can cause pneumonia in transplant patients, patients with chemotherapy. The other thing that you would see with adenovirus is a gastroenteritis. There are no approved antiviral drugs. Some people will give cydofovir, which is a very toxic drug, um, along with IVIG, as I said. IVIG seems to be the fallback for most things. Um, again, not a whole lot of literature, but your patient's really sick, you know, you're probably going to go down this route because that's the only option we have. Um, RSV. So I did medpeds, and so, we, you know, we used to see this a fair amount in, in infants, bronchiolitis, right, from RSV. Um, in adults, not as significant a disease. Where we see it is in bone marrow transplant patients. Where we see it is in stem cell transplant, I mean, uh, in uh, solid organ transplant patients. Usually a fall to winter epidemic. Now, two point, you know, this is 2.4, I don't know. It's from a study that showed, um, uh, the references are at the end, but um, probably, you know, 2 to 5% of community-acquired pneumonias are due to RSV, okay? So adults do get lower respiratory tract infection with RSV. It's just not very bad. Most people don't get very sick, right? Whereas the infants can get very, very sick. They can get apneic and, and all these other things. It's usually a fall to winter epidemic. Um, when, you, when you get RSV pneumonia in the elderly or the immunocompromised, the case fatality rate is similar to influenza. So not common to get severe disease, but if you get severe disease, it's, it's not. I mean, it's, it's really, really bad. Um, there is aerosolized ribavirin that's approved for children. It's not been really well studied in adults, but... Again, in the transplant population, uh, you may see this used because these patients get very sick, and this is really the only option we have. In general, for kids, though, they don't give um, ribavirin unless they're really, really ill. So usually they have to be in the ICU. Most kids don't end up there, um, and they give them um, Synergis, which is an um, immunoglobulin that, that's specific for, for respiratory syncytial virus to prevent it. Uh, this is the last virus I'm actually going to talk about, and I think it's kind of interesting because it's in the news. I was going to talk about SARS as well, but, you know, nobody's going to see SARS, hopefully. But this you might actually see because we've had a couple of cases here. Um, in, not here, but in the United States. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, coronavirus. Um, we've got a couple of people here who actually study this. Um, Matt Friedman and um, Wilbur Chen over at the Center for Vaccine Development are both studying coronaviruses, and this is this is one of the viruses. And Matt Freeman just published a bunch of stuff about um, rapid detection of this virus. So it's first described in Saudi Arabia in September of 2012. As of June um, 9th, I think, is when I pulled this up this data to. There were 699 confirmed cases worldwide from WHO with 209 deaths. That's a lot of deaths for the number of cases. Now, we I mean, you have to acknowledge that First of all, there's a whole lot more than 600 cases. But say that we are under, we're only getting 10% of the cases. And so it's like 6,000 cases. That's still a lot of deaths, 209 deaths for 6,000 cases, whatever it may be. So it's, it's got a high fatality. 63% of these patients are male. The median age is 47. Well, that didn't project at all. You guys can imagine what Europe looks like. Um, so... This is the WHO. It looks fine over here. It's, this is the WHO map of uh, where the cases are. You can see the majority of them are in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait. The first case was in Saudi Arabia. The second one was in Qatar, but the patient had just come from Saudi Arabia. Um, and then you can see it spread elsewhere, Tunisia, France, Great Britain. And, and then since this map was, uh, was put together in May, 
There have been cases reported in Algeria, Lebanon, Netherlands, USA, Algeria, Egypt. You can see the rest. So it's no longer just confined to this, this small area here. Um, so it's going to become something that everybody needs to think about. It's not clear what the transmission is. This is still sort of being worked out. Um, John Bartlett was just here on Monday to speak. John Bartlett's sort of like the god of infectious diseases. He was the chief of ID at Hopkins for many, many years. He's semi-retired. Um, he's like the world's expert on anything ID. And so he was convinced that this was going to be bat uh, transmission. But it's, it's thought that it's maybe bat to camel, not bat directly to humans. Bat to camel, camel to humans. And in the Middle East, you have a lot of people that, that use camels uh, for um, animals of labor and, and you know things like that, and then maybe human to human, and, and it, it seems it's pretty clear there is some hum, human to human transmission because there was an outbreak reported at a hospital uh, where multiple people got infected, and so it seems like human to human transmission does occur, although not very efficiently, which is probably the saving grace of this virus because otherwise a lot of people would be dying. Clinical features, um, this, is, this was published in Lancet Infectious Diseases. This was looking at um, 47 patients uh, in Saudi Arabia. Almost all of them had fever. Um, most of them have chills and rigors, um, cough, shortness of breath, hemoptysis in, in a very small percentage, sore throat, mild, just diarrhea. So that's one of the things. If you see somebody with respiratory symptoms that also has diarrhea, you want to think about um, MERS in that patient. Um, abdominal pain, and then you see the abnormal chest radiograph was seen in 100% in of the patients. Not anything specific, though. Not that you can say, hey, that's, that's a MERS x-ray, okay? So let me just tell you about the U.S. cases. The first case is a guy uh, who is a healthcare worker. Uh, it's, it, you know, if you look at the reports, they don't say what kind of healthcare worker. Um, but a healthcare worker in his 60s who lived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, um, he traveled from there um, to Indiana. Indiana, I'm not really sure why. He went from Riyadh to London to Chicago and then took a bus from Chicago to Indiana. Now, if this was a highly contagious virus, you can imagine the devastation that this would, this would lead to, um, which SARS was very highly contagious, at least it was thought to be. And, and so this thankfully isn't as much. But his symptoms started on April 14th, and two weeks later he was hospitalized. I tried to see what the follow-up on the patient is. There's nothing, nothing out there that says if he survived or not. I assume he's doing well um, because they would have reported the death, I think, MMWR would have. The second case was a visitor from Saudi Arabia that was confirmed on May 11th. There was a third case that we thought was um, due to the first case. It was somebody who had contact with the first patient, and they thought it was going to be a human-to-human -human transmission. And... Uh, the initial testing was consistent with, with, um, with MERS, but when they did the deep sequencing, it wasn't. It was a different virus. So it sounds like it wasn't actually a human-to-human -human transmission for a third case. So there's only two reported cases thus far in the United States. But again, I mean, I, my area of expertise is HIV, and HIV basically, you know, sort of blossomed all over the world because of air travel. And, and, and influenza does the same thing every year. And so SAR, uh, MERS could do the same thing. People can, people can get from uh, point A to point B in a very short period of time. And if they're not dead during that flight, they can infect others. So um, it becomes very serious very quickly. This led the Department of Health here to issue, did, did everybody get this? I think it was emailed to everyone. Um, basically says that, you have to identify people that might be um, at risk for having MERS, so you want to get travel history that go with their symptoms. Or if, you, if there's someone that they know had MERS, which is less likely because we only have two cases in the United States, um, and that you are required to keep them in the hospital. This letter doesn't say it, but the accompanying uh, PDF said, you have to keep them in the hospital until the health department approves their discharge. And, the, the, and, and it has pretty strict wording. It says something like, and the um, local law authorities can be utilized to enforce that. So if you suspect somebody has MERS, they have to stay in the hospital. Basically, they're under house arrest until, until the health department says it's okay for them to go. Can you bill for that? I don't know. You, got, you have to ask the health department. Um, okay, so I think that's all I had. So herpes virus is very common in, uh, in immunocompromised patients. You want to think about them in specific situations based on the um, syndromes that I talked about. 
Again, reactivation is very common, um, and it causes increased morbidity and mortality, but it doesn't, we're not, it's not clear if we treat these patients that they'll do any differently. Um, and then there's these endemic and epidemic respiratory viruses that you'll see frequently in the ICUs. And, and really, the most, most important thing is to uh, identify these patients early. Um, I, and, we, and you know, when people are sick, they shouldn't come to work. Um, I've been in the MICU several times where the patient's been there for two weeks or three weeks, and you know, in the third week, somebody does a respiratory virus panel, and it's rhinovirus. All right, they didn't get the common cold, you know, at home three weeks ago. That's from a nurse or a doctor or somebody in the hospital. And it's rhinovirus, not a big deal. But what if they got influenza? Um, that would be pretty significant if you got nosocomial infections from healthcare workers. So just keep that in mind. No, still zero zero. All right. So, thank you. Quick question for the. Uh, the herpes encephalitis individuals in whom you do not get a positive PCR, PCR um, do you send, is there any value in sending uh, serologic markers on no. top of that? Okay. I mean, you can send serological markers, but remember, 90% of people are going to be HSV positive. So if it's negative, it's helpful. But if it's positive, it doesn't necessarily help you. So, I, you, you know, think about it in that situation. But And for those with cutaneous lesions, uh, do you biopsy all of them, or do you just, uh, how, what's your preferred diagnosis? I mean, if it's if it's like that patient that you saw, um, I would just treat them. Uh, I would I would send it for culture. You can just do a shell bio culture, but I would start treating them before the culture came back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, transplant and ECMO. Those are, those are two very interesting things for me. Um, yeah, ECMO, it just, people just do stuff, right? Because it's like, we don't have a lot of evidence for ECMO. Like, ah, we'll just treat them for six weeks with antibiotics. Um, so five days. Some people say that you can extend another five days if they're still severely ill. But beyond that, I'm not really sure that it has much uh, utility. Yeah. They're going to shed virus for a while, too. You know, especially in that situation, they're very sick. So, I mean, that's kind of what I was touching on in my earlier question of, you know, uh, how beneficial is oseltamivir and zinamivir, et cetera. Um, you know, people have been pushing the pharmaceutical companies for, for longer. years to release their previously unreleased data uh, regarding efficacy in terms of morbidity and mortality. And it's, uh, there's, it's a lot more should be a lot more debate about their utility overall. I mean, you, in the, when they're as sick as they are in our patient population, yeah. I agree. You, you treat, treat it them. just because, yeah. you know, you got nothing else. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a complicated. Yeah, prob probably not a lot of utility, though, after, after the first five to ten days to, to treat those patients. You know, you're fixing them. You're doing ECMO. I mean, that's the bigger <laughs> intervention. I mean, not, you're not fixing them, but that's the intervention that's actually accomplishing right. something, you know. So... MERS guy for, that went to Indiana was actually, he traveled all the way to go to, to uh, see the Notre Dame campus in South Bend. There you go. See? Nothing good comes out of <laughs> Notre Dame. If he wasn't Dame. going there, he should have. Yeah. Nothing um, good comes out of <laughs> Notre Dame, especially not people. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank you, Devon, for talking to us.